All right, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? If we grab our seats, we're getting started here. All right. Before we start, I want to take just a moment to pray for Israel and what's happening in Israel right now. For those that don't know, um, Israel was attacked on Saturday um, from Gaza and uh, a war is breaking out in Israel right now. And We know that there's um, a couple thousand people that are injured, hundreds are dead. Uh, there's been a lot of bombing, especially in South Israel right now. Uh, but it's not just even just the, the attacks, it's the kidnapping, the hostages that they're taking, the children, the seniors, the, it's just a very bad situation. So just, let's just take some time to just pray, uh, pray for that, and then uh, we'll get started here. So Father God, we just pray. Lord, in these times, sometimes we don't even know how to pray, but we just ask just for your peace and presence to go to your people. Lord, that war is something that tears us apart as, as a part of the human race, but Lord, we know that you are God and that you are God in this situation too. So Lord, we pray for those that are mourning, that are grieving, that are uh, displaced. And Lord, we just ask for your hands to be upon them. Lord, may your peace come over them. May just your presence be on your people. But Lord, we just ask for wisdom for you to be upon the leaders in, in terms of what to do in this time. Lord, that as the world watches, that sometimes we don't know what to do, but we know that we could come to you and ask for you to, to intervene. So Lord, we just lift this whole situation to your hands. As a church, we stand uh, with Israel. And Lord, we just pray even for the people in Gaza, those that are not making these decisions, but we just even pray for the, the people there as well. So Lord, we lift all of this into your hands and may you continue to teach us what to do in these moments. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning to everyone. If you're here and joining us for the first time, I just wanna welcome you to Five Stones. We're going through uh, sermon series in Romans right now, and uh, for those that have been with us, we've been tackling some pretty big sections of Romans, and today it's another one of those big sections, and it's just, we want to get through 16, 16 chapters in 15 weeks, and so it's, it's a lot, uh, and so I, like I said, I want you guys to be able to take what we preach and take what we're, we're teaching up here as kind of a starting point for your own personal studies, right? We want you to actually go through Romans uh, on your own and not just come and listen to us uh, on Sunday. Uh, what we give you is very curated. It's very brief. Uh, it scratches just the surface of what Romans has to offer. And so we, I want you guys to continue uh, studying at home and reading at home. And today we have a... What we're covering is this huge section. 
But today what we're touching is this declaration, declaration statement for every one of us that is part of the church. For every single person that declare that they follow Jesus, this is the declaration statement, and that is in Romans 8, chapter 1. It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. And we're going to really focus in on that today. And simply, it's, it's about this. If you have faith in God, and you have faith in what God did for you through his son Jesus Christ, if you believe this is true, if you believe that this is your guiding principle in your life, you are not condemned. That you will not live in condemnation. Uh, to not be condemned means that you are no longer wrong, that you are no longer evil, that you are no longer unfit for use, that you are no longer guilty, you are no longer in need of punishment. That's what it means to not have condemnation. It means that you have received pardon and that you have been given grace. But before we go into that, we have to finish off chapter 7. So, Pastor Andrew last week finished in the first part of chapter 7 saying that we are free from the law, right? That we are free from the law. What Paul was addressing is a freedom from the things of practice, the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish laws that were there. That Paul was saying that Jesus came and he fulfilled everything that was required in the law, especially in those areas of cleansing. And that you're now free from it, that the laws don't actually bind you. And if we, we look at Jesus' ministries, we actually even see, see Jesus coming and saying that, I'm not abolishing the laws, I fulfilled them, but even then, there's something that is greater than these laws, as the aspect of love. If we look at Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus himself went against what was written in law. We see that Jesus healed a man on Sabbath, right? According to the law, that is completely unacceptable. That even his disciples were eating the, the heads of the wheat on Sabbath, and that's, that's a big no-no. But Jesus says, Jesus confronts this by saying that I have fulfilled all these things And he said that, he asked the question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? That's how Jesus confronted it. Jesus even confronted the laws of adultery. When the Pharisees came and threw the adulterous woman in front of Jesus, and said, okay, what does the law say? Jesus knew the laws. Jesus knew the laws that the, the, the consequence for adultery is stoning. Right? Jesus knew that. That this is written in our laws and what Jesus did, he said, let the first man without sin cast the first stone, knowing that he was the only one that was allowed to cast the first stone. But Jesus is saying that there's a freedom that we have within the laws. It's not that the laws are gone and the laws are not good, but there's freedom in it. 
that you're not bound to it, that you don't need to follow it to a place where it becomes legalistic, where it becomes religious, where it becomes this ruling aspect of your life. And instead, what Jesus came to do, he says, don't let the laws rule you, but let me be the one that you serve. God even gave permission for Peter to, to eat whatever he wants. Do you know that there's a lot of things in Jewish laws that don't allow you to eat? Like shellfish for all those Asians that are in here that love shrimp and crab. And can't eat those things. Pork, can't eat those things. Those are things that were deemed unclean. And God revealed to Peter through a dream saying that whatever I made clean is now clean. That's why you have permission to do those. I know Andrew probably still like, I still don't eat pork. Andrew's more Jewish than the rest of us. <laughs> He's not Jewish, by the way. He's not really Chinese either. <laughs> he looks Chinese, but inside he's actually brown. But here's the thing about law and human nature. That humanity has this proclivity towards re rebellion. This is what the Bible refers to the flesh. And it generally plays out in two ways. And both of these ways are of the flesh, okay? I'm not saying that one is right and the other is wrong. Both of it are flesh things. And when it comes to law, you're either a rule keeper or a rule breaker. And you know who you are. Every single family has one that keeps a rule and every single family has one that breaks the rules. My kids... The older one, uh, when he finds out that he breaks the rule, his heart kind of breaks a little bit. He's the sweetest kid. And he doesn't like to break the rules. He doesn't like to, to do anything wrong. And he feels terrible when, when he gets called out that he did something wrong. Whereas my younger one is just like, I'm going to go against anything that you put in front of me. Like, you tell me not to do this, I'm going to do it just so that you can't say that I, I can't do it. The more you say no, the more it pushes her towards, like, I'm going to break your rule. And one kid's more like me, one kid's more like Steph. I'm not going to tell you who's who, but I'm, I'm, I'm the rule follower. It's not that funny. <laughs> this is just kind of what happens, right? That some of us here are rule followers, right? We like the set of rules that gives us a sense of security, gives us a sense of this is, this is, these are my fences. These are the places that I could actually function within. And for the rule breakers, you put a fence, we're going to break that fence, right? You know who you are. I, I'm looking at some of your faces. You're just like, oh, yeah. But here's the thing is that we're, we're both of these things are flesh things. Both of these things are, are actions of the flesh, whether we are a rule follower or a rule breaker. 
Because as a rule breaker, your goal is to not follow anything. So when you see something like the Bible who gives us a bunch of rules, you're just like, mm, uh, this doesn't sit well with me. But for some of us that are rule followers, you see these and you're like, oh, this is great and I love this. But here's the reality is that it is impossible for you to follow all of these rules on your own strength. It's absolutely impossible. And that if you try to do this on your own, you will become religious and legalistic in it. So Paul gives us a whole set of things in terms of how do we interact with these things. So before we go into it, let's pray. And we're going to jump into it. Father, Father, we come before you today. And as we draw from your word as a church, Lord, we just ask for your spirit to come and bring more revelation. Revelations to our sins because we know that where sin abounds, that grace, that grace abounds even more. So God, we worship you in this place today. We bring, uh, we ask that you bring us uh, understanding and that this understanding transforms us to be more like your son, Jesus. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're constantly living in this tension, right? This tension for us as Christians and followers of Christ uh, is this tension of how do we live for the things of heaven and versus how do we live in our flesh? We're constantly in this tug-of-war. You know, as a kid, you play this game called tug-of-war. And this game is on one side you have one team, on the other side you have another team, and you, it's this, this war, this, this constant tension. And this tension that we live in, we're actually the rope. We're getting pulled by things of heaven and the things of God and the truths that God has given us and, 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 and the, the tug of God's on our hearts saying, oh, I want you to do this. I want you to live, live out your full calling. I want you to learn about your identity. I want you to, to rest in this place of knowing who I am. And then we have the tensions of the world where the world tells us that these are the things that you need. These are the things that you need to do. These are the things that you want. These are the things that will make you happy. And that you need to chase after these dreams. And there's this constant tension and you're the rope and you're getting pulled back and forth. Or rather up and down. Where we're constantly feeling the tension of the world is pulling us one way and heaven is pulling us the other. And then Paul comes in and says, well, This is how we relate to these things. These laws that God has given us, this is how we relate because the laws that were given were good. God gave us the laws in, in the Old Testament. You could find all of these laws in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. There's about 600 different laws. Okay? And God gave us these set of laws and the, when he gave us these laws, these are good things. So why do we need freedom from something that is good? Why do we need freedom from that? 
Here, here's what it says in Romans 7, 7 to 13. It says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what is, it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through command, the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. See, what Paul is saying here is that the law is what it's holy, is righteous, and it's good. That the law is good. And the purpose of these laws is to expose sin. That's the purpose of these laws. The purpose of the laws were to give us a set of moral compasses to live by. We don't know what is wrong unless we know what is right. The rule keepers are nodding and the rule breakers feel offended. Right? It's true. But it says that the laws are holy. The laws and the commandments are holy. They're righteous and they're for good. So verse 13 continues to say, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure it is for us to realize and come to that realization that sin brings death and that the laws is what brings sin into light so that we know what is righteous what God deems as righteous. You guys know those mirrors that you could purchase? We have one at home. My wife uses it to do her makeup and stuff. Where on one side it's kind of like an oval mirror and one side it's a normal mi mirror. And then when you flip it to the other side, it magnifies everything. You know those mirrors? And then on the side that has a magnifying, there's always like this ring light that kind of shines on your face. That's what kind of law is kind of like. On one side, that mirror, it kind of shows who you are. You, you get a sense of your identity. On the other side, when you flip it, it brings out all the little details, like all your wrinkles, all your pores, all those hairs that are growing out of weird places. Like you see all those things, right? Those are like the sins. And then when you put the light on it, it amplifies that. It brings all the shadows and all the... You start seeing how old you are, right? But that's kind of what the laws do. The laws take who you are and it amplifies kind of the things that are not right in your life. It takes what you don't see and it brings it into light and says that these are things that are not good in your life. That's what the laws are for. And so the laws in itself is not a bad thing. The laws in itself is good. Paul reminds us it's good. But the, what the law's purposes are is to expose sins that you may not know that you have in your heart. 
that's what the laws are for. And this is where that tug of war begins. And the, I feel this next part of the, the, the verse, this chapter, really deep in my soul because it says this, starting verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Let me just end there. But I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I do not understand my own actions. Verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. How true does this ring in your spirit? It's hard truth because this exposes ourselves. It brings our sins to light. Paul understands this. He understands, and we've all been in this place, right? We've all been tempted. We've all, we're all sitting here knowing that there isn't something that we, sh- there's something that we've done or something that we, we've said that is, is not right. Yet sometimes we sit there and we, even when we're faced with it, we do it anyway. Why is it that we lie, that we cheat, that we steal? Why is it that we do things we know will hurt someone that we love? Why is it that we lose our temper or lose our patience? Why is it that we demand things so that we can fulfill our own selfish desires? Why is it that we manipulate situations so it goes our way? Why is it that we sacrifice the things of God for things of the world? Do I need another pair of sneakers? Do I need another watch? Do I need, I'm speaking to myself, things that we're tempted with and we just want it for ourselves. Why is it that we speak condemnation to others? We all fall victim to these things that the world tells us that we need in our flesh's desires. And I point this out not to make us feel guilty, but to help us look at our sins. You see, sin is not always doing something wrong. Sin is doing something that takes you away from God, that distracts you from God. Then Paul goes on and says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is Paul being very honest with us. And church, this is a prayer of honesty even for yourself. You see, the church is full of people that use bad theology to cover bad behavior. 
And, the, and Paul is telling the church and saying, this is us. And because this is us, there's always going to be this tension. A tension of our old desires and the new desires of God. And we have this tension of unrighteousness. And what God has given us, which is a new righteousness. The tension of us being fallen, but now being raised in Christ. That we were slaves to sins, but now free from sin. That we were under law, but now we're under grace. That we were living in the flesh, but now we can live in the spirit. The struggle of sin is very real. We'll come back to the last part of chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, Paul shifts. And he gives us this beautiful promise. And this, this disclaimer here is, there's so much to unpack and there's so little time for me. And so I'm going to focus really on the first part of chapter 8. And it says this, verse 1 to 5, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's anything I want you to take away today, it's that. That you are sitting here and you feel like you're condemned. God says that you're not. Whether it's other people condemning you or whether it's yourself condemning yourself, God says you're not. That as you sit here today, God says that you're free from condemnation, that I do not condemn you, so no other person could ever condemn you. It goes on, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I feel like I could walk away right now and that's good enough for the sermon today. This is the gospel message, church. That you are no longer condemned, that you can live in a place of life, that death no longer has a hold on you. That because of his son Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, you now live no longer under condemnation. And that is the good news. But I have to preach a sermon, so... Here I go. Paul says there's this struggle within us. It's like this burden. And then he gives us this hope, saying that there's no condemnation. That we live in freedom. What kind of freedom? Freedom co from condemnation means this. That you can live free to confess. This means that you're able to say that I'm no longer punished by my punishment because my punishment is taken away from me. So it gives me the humility that I can confess my sin. Confess the areas that I've failed. Confess to the ones that I've failed. Confess 
about the places that have fallen, but also gives us the freedom to forget. So this is condemnation. What is condemnation? Condemnation is like the archaeologist of your life. When we come into a new life with Jesus, we have, a, we have this new life. We know that all is forgiven, that all is new. Condemnation is like the archaeologist that says, let me dig up what was buried in your past life and remind you of who you are. That's condemnation. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and I know for some of us, going to our family events is actually a, a very hard thing. Because oftentimes at those family events, people like to bring up kind of things that you used to do, right? And they're not fun. Because you're like, I'm no longer that person. They like to bring up all these things and it, 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 all these old things from which you've now been transformed by. And sometimes family is one of our biggest archaeologists that dig up those past condemnation. Or it could be friends, friends from your past that you're not really in relationship right now with in your present. I hate seeing my high school friends, right? The reason is because the person I was in high school versus the person I am today is very different, right? And so sometimes when my high school friends come to visit me here and they say, hey, John, let's go out, and they remind me of those times where we go to the clubs and we go partying and we they remind me of the times, oh, remember when you used to do this? And you're just like, oh. And those feelings of just embarrassment, those feelings of, it's a, it's a little PTSD, right? PST, PTSD, that's what it is. It's that, that trauma that you have to kind of relive. And those friends are kind of that, those friends that dig up your past and remind you of those things and you're just like, no, that's not me. I don't live that life anymore. I haven't, I'm a new creation in Christ. I am new because of what God did for me, because of what Jesus did for me. That those things no longer define me and those things are not the way that I used to do things now. That my past doesn't follow me. Sometimes I feel like the past follows me. A couple months ago, I went on a date with my wife in Brentwood Mall area. And we're sitting there eating, and I see this guy, and I'm just like, oh, no. I look at Steph, I'm like, you see that guy over there? He has the same tattoo as I do on my back. And no, the tattoo isn't a choice. It was a brand that was given to me when I ran with the big circle. And those things haunt you a little bit, right? And we live in this place where our past brings in condemnation. But you see, this is not from God. God says, I don't bring condemnation and you are no longer condemned. I will bring conviction. But here's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Is that conviction, there's hope. And condemnation, 
is hopeless. Conviction is like when a parent says to the child, I love you, I'm for you, I see greatness in your future, but there is this thing that you're doing wrong and it's going to hurt you. So let's give that to Jesus because Jesus died for it. And repent from that so that we can move on with your future and the destiny that God has for you. That's conviction. Condemnation accuses you and labels you and takes away your identity. It takes away your new identity that God has given you. It's, it's like when a parent says to a child, you're a liar and you'll always be a liar. It's when a parent says that you never fill in the blank. Or that you always fill in the blank. Condemnation speaks to you in a way that gives you a wrong identity of who you are. And in Romans 8, 1, it says that you are no longer that. That's great news. That you are no longer fill in the blank. That's no condemnation. That's gospel truth. That is the grace that God has given to us. That you are no longer who people say you are. That you are free from the law of sin and death. That you get to walk in a new life. That the spirit that gives you grace empowers you to live it victoriously. That you are no longer slaves to fear, but adopted as God's children. That you are heirs and co-heirs with Christ and that you share in his glory. But here's the thing. In Romans 8, it also says that living without condemnation doesn't mean that you will not suffer. Sometimes as Christians, we like to preach these messages of that once you come into the, the kingdom of heaven, that all things are good. But that's not true because we live in life, right? Life sucks sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes it sucks. And we do suffer. Verse 18, it says this, for I consider, 818, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, but not willingly. But because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Living in con without condemnation doesn't mean that you will not suffer, but that you, will, but that you are able to suffer compared to the glory of that awaits us. In the Old Testament, there's a person, there's a story, and there's actually a whole book dedicated to this person. The person's name is Job. And for those that know the story, you know who I'm talking about. But for those that don't know the story well, Job is put in this position where Satan makes this bet with God, right? And Satan goes to God and says that, I bet I can take this guy out. And God kind of says, okay, go for it. Give it your best, give it your all. It's, it's actually kind of a terrible story, <laughs> if I'm honest with you, right? Like, it, it gives me anxiety just 
just reading it sometimes. But what happens in the story is that Satan puts Job through the roughest test and literally takes everything away from him. Literally everything. He takes away his wealth, takes away his home, takes away his health, takes away his family, takes away his wife, takes away everything. He is left with absolutely nothing. God kills everything and takes away absolutely, not God, Satan takes away everything and leaves him with absolutely nothing. I don't ever want to be put in that test. I don't know if I have the faith that Job has to handle it. But here's the thing is that life brings suffering, right? We've all lived through suffering some way or another. Every single one of us know what suffering feels like. Some of us may suffer more than others. We're not grading suffering, but we're just saying that we've all gone through some level of suffering. What's happening in this story is not that God's not there. God is there. He's watching this whole thing happen. He's allowing all of these things to happen, actually. And oftentimes when we go through our own personal suffering, we actually say, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to me? Some of us even go to that place where we blame God for the suffering. We say, God, you're making me suffer. But the reality is that we live in a broken world and Satan makes us suffer. Satan is doing these things to us, not God. But sometimes it's not even Satan. Sometimes it's just that life sucks because we live in a broken world. And sometimes what life throws us us sucks. You see, what God doesn't promise us is bliss and happiness. God doesn't promise us that. He's not after your happiness. But what God says, you know what? The world is coming at you. And all of the brokenness of the world is coming after you. Let's not be naive, naive about that, but that there will be earthquakes and storms and wars in life. But this is the response that Job had as he was being put through this. And Job's response is that no matter what is thrown at me, I will maintain my faith. This faith is not a faith of stupidity. It's not even a childlike, naive faith. It's a spiritual toughness. It's saying that I could handle this because I know who my God is. And that my God is for me. That God did not spare his son, but gave him for us. What other proof do you need that God is for you? Job didn't even have that opportunity to know who Jesus is, and his faith was there. 
if you look at every single story in the Old Testament, they live under the Old Covenant. Every single one of those person, salvation came through their faith because they were made righteous through their faith. That's why those stories are there. Those stories are there to give us an example of how we are to live in faith. Sometimes I feel like under the new covenant, we take it for granted that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, that we don't remember that we need to have faith in order for us to be righteous, that we just think that Jesus' blood covers everything that I do, and therefore we just need to coast along, and that's not right. There requires us a spiritual toughness for us to fully understand what faith is. That regardless of what is being thrown at us in life, that we're able to stand knowing and saying this one statement that I know my God is for me, who could be against me? Church, This idea of living with no condemnation is knowing that God is for you, right? To know that God is for you. This is the big idea, Romans 8, 31 to 39. Everybody knows these verses, okay? We're going to read them together. This is going to be our anthem today. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are, all, we are being killed all day long. We, re, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is living a life with no condemnation. Church, I want you guys to have a spiritual toughness about you guys. I want you guys to understand what it means to have faith, what it means to not be condemned, what it means to be a child of God. Romans 8, memorize this. Why? Because it's going to give you that spiritual toughness. It's going to speak truth into your life when those, in those moments where you're feeling, oh, the world is against me. Know this truth. If there's anything I want you to take out of this series, it's this. This is the pinnacle of the church. This is what the church is revolving around to know who we are as a church. You are no longer condemned. That there's nothing against you if God is for you.
for us to live as people under grace and no condemnation is knowing this truth. To have faith like Job, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to finish off with this one story. Charles Stanley tells of a story of a professor who wanted to teach his lesson, his students a lesson about grace. And so Charles Stanley says this, one of my more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam and caution the class to read it all the way through before beginning to answer it. This caution was written on the exam as well. And as we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of us that we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, audible groans could be heard throughout the lecture hall. And on the last page, however, was a note that read, you have a choice. You could either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in so doing, receive an A for this assignment. We sat there stunned, Stanley said. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? Slowly, the point dawned on us, and one by one, we turned in our tests and silently filed out of the room. When I talked to the professor about it afterwards, he shared some of the reactions that he had received throughout the years of giving this exam. He said that some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class time before reaching that last page. Others read the first two pages, become angry, turn the test in blank, and stormed out of the room without even signing it. And they never realized what was available, and as a result, they lost out totally. One fellow even read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyways. He did not want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C+, plus, but he could have easily had an A. Romans 8 is the last line on the test of life. All who read the words here and believe them pass God's test with flying colors and they get an A. Some of us hear about God's holiness and give up never trying to make the grade. Some of us spend an entire lifetime angry at God who desires to give them grace. And a lot of people depend on the morality and the good deeds to get them into heaven. And they do their best to work their way into God's approval. But unfortunately, nothing less than a perfect score will do. And it's only by God's grace that you could achieve this perfect score. Like Charles Stanley's professor, God makes an offer that seems too good to be true. But the truth is this, it's only question that ultimately matters is, would you take the grace of God or would you reject it? If God is for us, who could be against us? Church, 
this message is not just for you. But this message is for you as a witness for what God has to offer the world. That the life that you live and the way that you live it is a witness of God's grace given to you. That yes, we have freedom from the laws. But that the laws give us the morality of what is righteous and what is not. We live according to those things because we are a witness of God's glory, that we are a witness of God's grace. And because of that, we live a certain way. We don't live so that we could gain God's approval. We don't live so that we could gain into God's grace. We live because of God's grace. So for those of us that are believers and understand the grace of God, I want you guys to be challenged in some of the ways that we think. Because oftentimes I feel like we're our biggest condemners, right? We're our own worst enemies. That we condemn ourselves even before others can condemn us as to protect ourselves, right? But God says, you're not condemned. You're not condemned. You're free from this. But God says that to everybody else, too, in this world. And for those that don't know God, God is saying today that because of what I did through my son, that you're not condemned today. And we're able to live in that freedom. So church, that's your message for the world. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We just come knowing this truth. Knowing that you are for us. Knowing that we are not condemned. Knowing that we are your children. That we are heirs to your kingdom. So, Father God, we come knowing this truth and saying, Lord, we just come under your grace and we receive your grace so that we could stand knowing who we are. Lord, restore unto us just the joy of our salvation. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your love. Remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Spirit girls also along with us.
The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. So church, sometimes when things are happening in our lives and we say, we don't understand, how come there's still some feelings that we are so down? It's not because God is condemning you. It's because the world is broken. And we groan. And it's okay to groan. It's okay to feel. It's okay to say, I feel so defeated. I feel so, so out of shape, so, so done with this world. I'm so done. And it's okay. Groan, because the groanings are used by the Spirit of God to pray for you, interceding for you. Because why? God is for us, not against us. God is for us. So today, as, we, as Pastor John has preached, remember that message. Even when we are groaning, even when we are feeling like things are off kilter, it's okay. Because you are safe, you are no longer condemned, you are free. So groan freely. <laughs> groan inwardly, groan freely. And let the Spirit of God take those groanings who the Spirit Himself groan along with us. Father God, as we, as we experience this new freedom, this new freedom of life in Christ Jesus that has set us free from the, from the law of sin and death, that the only thing that's been condemned is sin, not us, because you are for us, not against us. There's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And may we just lean on that, trust in that, just like Abraham believed you when he tells uh, God, you told Abraham that, uh, that he would be the father of many nations. And he just believed that, and, and, and that was enough. And God, we know that today as we stand here believing in you, trusting you, that you will set us free from the law of sin and death. You will set us free from all our guilt and all our guilty feelings. The only thing that is condemned is sin, and it's been nailed to the cross. It's gone. It's done. And today, may we live in that reality. And though we still groan today, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would take our groanings up to the throne of, to the throne of grace, to the throne of heaven. And you know our, our present world is still groaning. We see Israel groaning. We see Ukraine groaning. We see all these groanings that are happening in this world. We see East Hastings groaning. We see all those things that's happening in our, in our world. And we groan and we groan and we groan. But you tell us that you are for us. You tell us that uh, we, we are living in a place of grace. That we can come to you freely. We have that access to you. So help us to cultivate a, a sense of freedom and to give it away as well to others rather than condemn others, rather than say, hey, you're not right. But saying the freeing gospel message to them as well, that they are no longer condemned as well, if they believe, if they trust you. So Jesus, as we, as we at the church here, begin to have this new cleansing of, of, of freedom, of liberty in our spirit. May we translate that to the community that we are around as well, to give that grace to others. 
And so help us as we continue to reflect on this message. May we truly be empowered by grace and set free and set others free. So Jesus, live, uh, help us to live by faith and to trust you and to have this, this toughness of faith when, even when we go through uh, difficulties in our hearts, in our lives. So walk with us and help us to cling to you and cling to, to, uh, to this freeing word that, that there is therefore now no condemnation. And be with us as we celebrate you this Thanksgiving weekend. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And God's people say, Amen.